following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, good morning, CLF. Well, as you know, we're going through the series called Shaping Virtues of the Christian Life. And we've been through humility, we've been through encouragement and gratitude and generosity. And today I'll be preaching on joy. So right up front, here's the big idea. God's will is that we experience continual joy in Him. And His Word shows us how this is done. Our passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. So I know you just now were seated, but if you could stand again for the reading of God's Word. Mm-hmm. And I'll be reading from the, from the NIV uh, 84 edition today. Uh, the passage is short, and so if you could please join me and repeat after me. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Let's pray one more time. Oh Lord, we thank you for your holy, inerrant, all-sufficient and authoritative word. Oh Father, thank you. And Lord, our desire this morning is to conform our lives, to conform our thoughts, Lord, our actions, and um, to your holy word. And Lord, we know that as we do, Lord, we will begin to be transformed. So Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this um, uh, focus on joy this morning. I pray for those here, Lord, who are struggling to find it. I pray that they find it, Lord, as they fix their eyes on you. Lord, we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, my goal this morning, my goal this morning is that you leave today equipped for joy, that you will know how to find joy in the midst of all your circumstances, and that you will also be able to help others do the same. I want to start off by giving two definitions of joy. Um, Here's how Noah Webster defined joy in his 1828 dictionary. He says, joy is the, the passion or emotion excited by the acquisition or expectation of good. That excitement of pleasurable feelings, which is caused by success, good fortune, the gratification of desire or some good possessed. So joy is an emotion. And here the definition ties joy to circumstances. So this, by and large, is how the world understands joy. Now here's how John Piper defines joy. He says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. That's really good, isn't it? 
Thank you, John Piper, for this excellent definition of joy. Uh, you know, Christian joy is unique and stands in stark contrast to the world's understanding of joy. There was a time um, overseas, when we were overseas, when um, several years into our work, I was uh, extremely discouraged. I was depressed. Uh, we'd been on the field for quite some time. Uh, and, you know, we had shared the gospel countless times, thousands of times. And yet nothing was happening. Uh, we were laboring. We were working. And there was no fruit. There was no results. And, you know, my prayers went like this. You know, I was, Lord, what is going on? What is happening? Why isn't anything happening? You know, why aren't you doing anything? Did we make a mistake by coming here? You know, additionally, our lives um, uh, at the time were, were just, um, it, life was very difficult. Our living conditions were very difficult. And we had no leadership present with us on the field. And so joy by no means, you know, characterized me during this season of of life. I remember writing my wife a very heartfelt letter and suggesting, you know, maybe we just need to leave and return to the U.S. Well, maybe we should have have left, but we stayed and we continued uh, working what seemed to be what felt like um, just a, a very fruitless, barren context. Well, I'm going to pause that story and come back to it later on, but, you know, maybe you can identify you know, what weighty circumstances are you facing right now that make joy, finding joy, uh, seem impossible? You know, I pray that you leave today full of hope, confident in the joy that, that God freely offers us and invites us into. Well, I want to uh, right now look at the historical context of First Thessalonians and give a brief overview of the book. Uh, the city of Thessalonica is located in present-day Greece, and the population is about 200,000, was about 200,000. It's located in what is called today the Via Ignatia, which is a major travel route connecting the east to the west. And Paul wrote the book of First Thessalonians from the city of Corinth um, between about approximately um, 49 to 52 A.D., and First Thessalonians is known as the first chronologically among Paul's letters. He wrote it to the Christians in Thessalonica shortly after the church was established. And Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 4 records the uh, story of Paul and Silas's first visit to Thessalonica. The Thessalonian church was a suffering church. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. And in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, we see that Paul had told them previously that they could expect suffering, that they would suffer. And in chapter 1, verse 6, it says that the Thessalonians embraced suffering with joy. Well, the main theme of the book of First Thessalonians is sanctification. And Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to encourage the Thessalonians to persevere through their trials and to excel in their walk of faith. Now, Paul had nothing but good things to say about um, this church. Uh, they were a model church. The book opens up with Paul giving thanks for the Thessalonians' example of faith. In chapters 2 to 3, Paul talks about 
his gospel ministry among the Thessalonians. He labored hard among them, and he had a deep parental affection for them. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul tells them that he tried to visit them, but he was unable. And so he sent Timothy instead, who, after a while, he came back with a very encouraging report on how the Thessalonian church was doing. In chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, Paul gives a prayer which acts as a pivot between uh, the first and second half of the book. In the second half of the book, between uh, chapters 4 and 5, Paul gives some instructions to the Thessalonian church uh, about holiness, uh, about a life pleasing to God, and about the hope of Christ's return. Finally, in chapter 5, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, Paul gives some final instructions, and it closes with a benediction. And it's in this final section um, that we want to focus in on. Well, next, I want to look at our text for the day and make some observations. But before we do, I want to read um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 again. And if you could please repeat after me again. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Mm, Thank you. My focus is joy this morning, which has me concentrating on verse 16. However, I'm going to be looking at this verse in the context of the sentence it's in, in verses 16 to 18. So what, I'll attempt, what I will attempt to show is that this verse has, um, that this sentence has much more to do with joy than just verse 16. Uh, the first observation is that the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, and the New King James, and actually a majority of the translations, translate verses 16 to 18 as one sentence. So going forward as we continue, it's best to look at these verses as one sentence, one thought um, presented by Paul, rather than three separate uh, thoughts and exhortations. The second observation is that we can observe that this one sentence has three commands. To be joyful, to pray, and to be thankful. And third, Paul doesn't just say, be joyful, pray, and be thankful. He explicitly says, be joyful always. Pray continually. And in all things, give thanks. Uh, Paul is telling the Thessalonians that they, these are things which they are to be doing all the time. Next um, observation is that the NIV 84 translation, which, which I grew up with, uh, uses the words be joyful. Uh, the ESV, the NASB, the New King James say to rejoice. Okay? The literal rendering of the verb rejoice in Greek is to feel happiness or joy. To feel happiness or joy. The fifth observation I make is that joy is an emotion. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we are commanded here to pursue an emotion, to have an emotion. And think about it. God commands us to feel a certain way. Now, this is very interesting. We'll come back to this later. Lastly, Paul gives the reason for these commands at the end of verse 18. 
where he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, Charles Wanamaker, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, says the following. He says, there is no good reason for limiting this statement to only the last of the three injunctions. The parallel imperative will form of all three indicates an equal stress on each one. It would be indeed peculiar if Paul thought only giving thanks was the will of God. So the Thessalonian church is being told, uh, we are being told that God's will is that we obey him and faithfully practice these commands to rejoice always, to pray continually, and to give thanks in all circumstances. Well, let's begin looking at the principles and applications that we can draw from this text. And once again, before we get to this last section, um, I want to read once again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. And if you could please, please repeat after me. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Thank you. So the following are six principles from our text which reveal how joy can be found. And the first is this. True joy is found in a relationship with God. Now take note that these three commands, to be joyful, to pray, and to be thankful, are all focused on God. True Christian joy is a result of our union with God. It's a gift. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And our prayers are directed toward God. And thanksgiving is the expression of our recognition of God's abundant grace in every area of our lives. So these commands direct us to and focus us upon God. Specifically, joy is found in a relationship with God when we believe in Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf and when we repent of our sin. And what incredible joy to know that there is, there is no sin between us and God. There's none, and that we have been reconciled to him. And even after we are saved, we continue to find joy as we make it our habit to seek and pursue him daily. So joy comes as we daily continue to pursue him, to abide in him. You know, the psalmists modeled this pursuit of God very well. Um, the theme of pursuing God and seeking refuge in him runs throughout the Psalms. Listen to these two passages from Psalms. Psalm 61, verses 2 to 4. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. In Psalm 62, verses 1 to 2, it says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. I will never be shaken. 
So the psalmists knew that comfort and relief and refuge could be found in God. And the psalmist also knew that God's presence and refuge in him was a place of joy. Psalm 63 verse 7 says, In the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. And Psalm 5 verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And Psalm 36 verses 7 to 8 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. And as the psalmist show us, the presence of God is a delightful place, a place of joy. Yet you know what they knew in part, we know in full through Christ. Matthew 18, in Matthew 18, 11 through 28, Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And in John chapter 7, 37 to 38, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So true and abundant joy is found in a relationship with God through his son. And worship is the Christian's response back to God for the joy that we find in him. So here's some applications for this principle. You know, regularly remind yourself of the reasons for joy you have through the gospel and in Christ. And during the course of your day, be quick to pause and pray and enter God's presence and worship him. Read God's word daily and allow it to direct your prayers and guide your worship. Well, the next principle is this. Joy is found as we remember and meditate on the gospel. As I said before, joy is an emotion. And here in verse 16, God commands us to have this emotion. You know, how exactly does this work? You know, how exactly can emotions be commanded? You know, can you imagine doing this with your teenagers? It would be nice, wouldn't it? Hey, okay, be happy now, right? Now, I don't know what's about you, but I simply can't change my emotions on a dime. So, you know, we can't command people's emotions. You know, it's impossible. So what exactly does it mean when God commands us to have this emotion of joy? Now, I would suggest that the command to be joyful is a command to remember God's love for us through the gospel and to respond to it through prayer and thanksgiving. You know, we see this trio of commands um, in Philippians 4, 4 to 6, uh, to rejoice and to pray and to be thankful. It, it, it reads, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know, so the command to rejoice in the Lord, 
you know, as we see in Philippians 4, 4, it is an exhortation for us to fix our minds on the Lord. And this requires that we change our thinking and refocus our thoughts on him. Uh, throughout scripture, God calls his people to remember all he has done and to respond by seeking him and celebrating his goodness, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds the Thessalonians about several things. He reminds the Thessalonian church about how the gospel came to them and the impact it had. So in chapter 1, verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminded the Thessalonians that the gospel had come to them in power. And in chapter 1, verse 6, the next verse, Paul reminded them that they had embraced the gospel message in the midst of much suffering. And in verse 7 to 8, Paul reminded them that they had become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and that their faith had gone forth everywhere. And in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul reminded them that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So it is important that we take time to remember how the gospel came to us and the impact it had. Joy comes as we remember the gospel and we celebrate all that God has done through Christ. We are not the same, are we? We have been freed from slavery to sin and we have been radically changed. We've been adopted by God and we are joint heirs with Christ. And so when, when the difficulties of life, when, when we become overwhelmed with, with the pressure of life, these are things which should bring us joy. And this joy expressed in prayer with thanksgiving leads us to worship. So here are some applications for, for this point, for this principle. Be quick during your day to pause and remember the gospel, God's expression of love for you and how it was displayed in your life. And allow this frequent practice of meditating on the gospel to influence all you say and do and think. The third principle is this. Joy comes from being in the presence of God. In verse 17, we see the command to pray. So the command to pray is a command to enter God's presence. It's a command to fellowship with him. It's a command to worship him and offer up our praises and our petitions. And when the pressures of life come our way, God's presence is where we need to run to. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word fullness here in this verse in Hebrew can often refer to eating until you are fully satisfied. God's presence, God himself, is meant to fully satisfy you. Listen to Psalm 63, verses 3 to 5. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. This is the joy that God desires for you. And it comes from being in his presence. But let me ask you, does God satisfy you so that you desire to be in his presence? Do you have an eagerness to spend time with him each day? Do you look forward to being in his word and meditating on it? If so, praise God. Keep pressing into him. But if not, let me encourage you with all your heart to pray that God reveal to you whatever is coming between you and joy in him. And pray that God give you such a strong desire for him that results in you doing all it takes so that your joy in him can be restored. Listen to how these verses um, on joy in the Psalms express the psalmist's devotion to and desire for God in his presence. Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right side, I will not be shaken. In Psalm 63, verse 8, it says, My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. In Psalm 84, verse 10, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Oh, how different our lives would be if we pursued God's presence this fervently. If we made being in his presence our absolute top priority day to day. Well, here are some applications for this principle. And I'll start with this. If you feed an appetite, it will grow. If you feed an appetite, it will grow. If you feed your appetite for the things of this world, it will grow and potentially dominate your life. Devote yourself to faithfully feeding your appetite for God, and you'll find that it will steadily grow. It will become part of your daily life. It will become habitual. So arrange your schedule and make spending time in God's presence, in his word and in prayer, your top priority and habit. Nothing will bless you more. Well, the the fourth principle is this. Joy comes from being thankful. I really appreciated Seth's uh, sermon on gratitude. Uh, Thank you, Seth. You know, it it feels really good to be appreciated, doesn't it? To be the recipient of someone's gratitude. And have you ever noticed that when appreciation and gratitude are expressed, both the giver and the receiver experience joy? And I believe that this communicates to us something very delightful about the joyful experience of thanksgiving and worship. So verse 18 tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. It's easy to be thankful in good times, isn't it? The Lord is good. Thank you, Lord. But it's hard to be thankful in hard times when we're suffering, when life is painful. But the implication here is that we are to be thankful in all things. 
How about when people are rude and disrespectful to us? Yes, even then. How about if we're uh, bedridden and laid up in the hospital? Yes, even then. How about if tragedy strikes us or our family? Yes, even then we are to be thankful. And how about if the economy collapses and many of us lose our jobs and homes? Yes, even then we are to be thankful. Now, some people might think, okay, well, that is a bit ridiculous. You mean life has fallen apart and I'm to be thankful? And I say absolutely yes. And here is why. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Because this is true, our hearts can be glad even in the midst of the most dire circumstances. And because this is true, we can confidently face trials day to day. And because this is true, we have a reason to persevere. Amen. Well, here are three quick points about about um, gratitude, about thanksgiving. First is that thanksgiving cultivates dependence upon God. Thanksgiving reminds us that what we need most is God himself. We are dependent upon him, not his blessings and gifts. Thanksgiving helps us to realize that we are completely dependent upon God and that without him, we are as helpless as newborn infants. And point number two is that Thanksgiving prepares our hearts for joy. As we make giving thanks to God our daily habit, joy should fill our hearts as we remember how good he is and how undeserving we are. And lastly, thanksgiving leads to worship. The Christian can't help but worship as he is overwhelmed with gratitude at God's goodness to him through Christ. Here are some applications for this point. Discipline yourself to frequently thank God throughout the day and allow your thanksgiving to become a place of worship. If you get into the habit of thanking him for everything, you will learn to go to him for everything. The fifth principle is this. Joy is found in the continuous practice of being joyful, praying, and giving thanks. We see in this passage that we are to rejoice and pray and be thankful all the time. And once again, the implication is that no matter how bad life gets, even if we begin to suffer and are persecuted like those in the first Thessalonians, in the church of Thessalonica, these commands are to be practiced. But you know, there's nothing that comes to mind that, that in this life that I can imagine doing all the time. You know, if you think about all the pleasurable, entertaining, fun, exciting, adventurous experiences in life that people dream about doing when they have enough money or when they retire, uh, can you imagine doing any of these things all the time? I mean, it's even absurd to think about. Now, everything in life 
You know, even the greatest of experiences eventually becomes tedious and boring. So how is it possible to imagine, um, how is it possible to imagine devoting so much time to pursuing joy in God, uh, to prayer and thanksgiving? And here's what we must realize. God has designed us and created us so that true and enduring contentment and joy in this life is only found in him through his son Jesus. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And when we believe this, when our hearts truly desire him more than anything else, that practicing these commands continually throughout our day will be something that we really want to do. We have been created and designed for our relationship with God. And that is where joy is found. Once again, take note of the fact that the command to be joyful is to be done always. And the command to pray is to be done continually. And the command to be thankful is to be done in all things. You know, it would be impossible to literally practice these commands continually, uh, all the time, every moment of the day. And we would get very little done. You know, the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel do not work. Uh, They are funded by the state of Israel. And so all they do is is pray and and study the Torah. Uh, God has not called us to live this way. We are to be light in darkness. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. So if we did these things all the time, you know, we we wouldn't be able to get anything done. We, We couldn't even carry on a conversation. You know, doing any work which requires vigorous concentration and thinking would be impossible. But... During our idle time, during our idle time, when we're driving, when we're in line at the grocery store, uh, when we're on the treadmill, when we're mowing the lawn or washing the dishes or folding clothes, we can be doing these things. May God give us wisdom to steward our time for his glory. Here are some applications for this principle. Take an inventory of your idle time and consider carefully how you use it and pray that God give you wisdom to know how to glorify God with your idle time. Memorize first Thessalonians five sixteen to 18 and frequently pray and meditate on this passage and pray for a mind devoted first and foremost to God and for the self-discipline to direct your thoughts primarily on him. The last principle is this. Joy comes from obedience to God's commands. Now take note that these are commands in this passage, uh, not suggestions. And obeying them should be, uh, should therefore be a, a matter of priority to us. And consider the things in your life that you make um, a matter of priority. Okay? Uh, paying your rent or mortgage. Right? How long would you be able to live where you live presently if you do not pay your rent or mortgage? 
And how about filling your car with gas or changing your oil? How long would you be able to drive your car if you didn't perform regular maintenance? And how about other things that we make a matter of priority, such as paying our taxes, um, home maintenance, or personal hygiene? Now, a large majority of us do these things very well. Now, if we are ever faithful to such menial priorities, how much more should we be faithful to God and the priorities he outlines for us in his word? So take note of what it says at the end of verse 18. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The Greek here for God's will is exactly the same as we see a chapter um, before in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, which says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There's no wiggle room here, and this is not optional. So devoting ourselves to the continual pursuit of joy, to habitual prayer, and to giving thanks in all circumstances, this is a matter of obedience. We must go beyond just knowing and remembering and meditating on God's word, and we must devote ourselves to actually obeying, to actually practicing his commands and living the way he lived. First John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, how happy would your wives be, men, if, you know, you remembered your wife's birthday, but you did nothing else? You know, you didn't buy her a card or roses or take her on a date. And how healthy would our families be if we knew all of God's requirements about how to parent well, but never practice them? Joy comes not just knowing God's word. It comes when it is obeyed and practiced. Listen to Psalm 119, verses 33 to 35. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Obedience brings joy. But please take note. Please take note. This obedience is not a mechanical um, and religious obedience motivated by fear. And that, that's how, you know, uh, the religions of this world are motivated. This obedience flows from a heart of worship. Obedience comes from being in awe at the fact that our creator became a man so that he could suffer and die for our sin. Obedience results from the astonishment that God didn't just save us, but he adopted us and made us joint heirs with Christ. Obedience flowed from the amazement that nothing now can separate us from the love of God. We are to be characterized by this faithful obedience to God's commands. Joy in the Lord is what motivates us to obey. And joy is what obedience brings us. So, 
some closing applications. Be resolved in your hearts to practice these commands, to practice being uh, continually joyful, uh, to practice habitual prayer, and to practice giving thanks in all circumstances. And as you open God's word in your personal devotions, be, be resolved in your hearts to obey whatever the Lord shows you. Well, here's the rest of the story that I began um, at the beginning. You know, as I stated before, we were on the mission field, and I, I was very discouraged. I was very depressed. And after several years on the mission field, um, nothing was happening. There was no results, uh, no spiritual fruit. And to be honest, you know, what I really wanted uh, deep down is, is I wanted to see results. I had worked tirelessly, and I wanted to see some of the fruit of my labor I desired results in ministry so bad that I had no no joy. And I, I realized looking back that I was allowing my joy to be based on results. But one day I came across 1 Peter 2.9 that says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, this was a game changer for me. I realized that my responsibility was to declare the praises of God seen in Christ and in the gospel. And I realized that there was value in doing so, even if people rejected the gospel. And after this point, you know, my evangelism significantly changed because I began to see that that evangelism, I began to see it as an extension of my worship, a praise-saturated declaration of the glory and worth of Christ. And as I savored, as I treasured Jesus and the glorious gospel which saved me, evangelism became an expression of my own joy. Well, I continue to have opportunities to practice what I've been sharing with you about joy. I just recently, very recently, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And it hit me, it hit me quite hard. Uh, and I realized that, um, you know, it hit me hard because I, it, it made me susceptible to a number of other different problems. I also needed to change my diet considerably. But as I began to, to pray about this and to think through this, you know, I began to realize that there's more to life than good food. And I realized that there's more to life than good health. My joy, I realized, does not come from any of these things. My joy comes from my Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for me so that I may experience fullness of joy in him. So my brothers and sisters, be resolved to practice these commands. You will be blessed if you do. And remember this, as delightful as joy is to our souls, joy is not ultimately about us at all. Rather, through prayer and thanksgiving, true joy leads us to a worshipful encounter with God himself where we delight in him and take pleasure in him, where we celebrate 
his infinite and supreme worth. Where we give our odd response at his praiseworthy character. And where we, with the entirety of our lives, in thought, word, and deed, devote ourselves to his glory. And it is, it is right here in worship where our joy is the greatest. But let's pray. Oh, Lord, we stand in awe. Lord, we are amazed as we think of how you, dear Lord, sent your son to suffer and die so that we could have fullness of joy in you. Oh, Father, we stand amazed at that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that that our heart's desire, Lord, is to press into you and is to seek you daily, Lord. We want more of this joy. We want more of it, Lord. Like you say in, in Nehemiah, Lord, your joy is our strength, Father. So we long for this joy. We pray for this joy. We wait for this joy. And I pray, Lord, that as, as, as we fix our eyes on you and as we pursue you as our greatest treasure, I pray, Lord, that, that Lord, it just leads us to worship. And I pray, Lord, also that it, it leads us, Lord, it makes us so desirous to want to declare your praises in our community, in the workplace, and everywhere we might be, and bring other people into our joy. Oh, Father, we love you. Your love is most precious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.